Welcome No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. This is your host, Sarah Box. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. And when I tell you who it is and the book he's recently written, you may be as excited as I am, but possibly not for the same reasons. So today our guest is Professor Michael Goldsby, and he is the Stoops Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship and Executive Director of the Entrepreneurship Center in the Miller College of Business at Ball State University. And he has also recently co-authored a book, Entrepreneurship the Disney Way. Right there, you have two of my favorite things, entrepreneurship and Disney. So I'm excited to introduce Michael to you today. He's, um, he has many different things that he's going to be able to share with us around what it takes to um, succeed, the attributes that lead to or led to Walt Disney's success, some of the takeaways from that, and then how challenges and the cross sections across all different fields, whether we're entrepreneurs or in the nonprofit, for-profit sector, the lessons that Walt Disney can teach us around being successful in that. And with that, as a very brief introduction, Mike, would you like to say a little more in depth about yourself before we start talking about your book and what you know? Sure, yeah. So uh, I am a person who is obsessed with a few things. And uh, one of those is what I would just term excellence. I'm just very driven to find out what the best do, as you are as well. And I'm also a person very interested in creativity, innovation, and design. And the third piece is really personal productivity, because I think it's a combination of how we look at things and how we come up with new ideas and then how we move things forward into the world. And that, that's one reason why, obviously, I love Walt Disney so much. Well, talk about how did you pick that as a subject to write about? Yeah, so I'm an entrepreneurship professor, and I you know, teach about business excellence, and I teach about people coming up with new ideas. And here's the interesting thing. I actually read other people of, of, our, of our generation say the same thing. Being a kid that growing up in the, in the 1970s, uh, you know, Walt Disney had, had passed on in 1966, and the company wasn't putting out all those classics when we were kids. And so I was a fan of Star Wars, and I was a fan of science fiction, Disney was on TV. I watched a little bit of it, but I really wasn't that into Disney like kids are now. And it was kind of that, that slow period of the Walt Disney Company after Walt died. And so in, in night, or it was actually, it was in 2008, I was at a conference out in Anaheim, California, just down the road from Disneyland. And my flight was, it was going to be uh, late that night, and I had an afternoon. And I thought, why don't I just go down and see Disneyland? I've not been there since I was a little kid. Uh, it had been many years and I walked down there and I, and I started walking around the park and I started taking things in. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then I sat down, if you've been there in the center hub in front of the castle and there's the partner statue of Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse. And I was sitting there watching everybody and I look at the castle and I, and I just had one of those, those big moments in life where you, we feel like you're being called to do something. And that calling was, I've got to know more about this man who made all this happen. And when I, I just started reading a couple of books that were classics on him, and the more I dug into it, the more I thought, wow, this is like the blueprint for anyone 
who wants to do anything entrepreneurial. And the further I dug and the more I uncovered, the more that confirmed for me that this is one of the most amazing stories, not only in American business, but just human history. When we think about a blueprint, we think about like the cornerstones or the pieces that have to be in place. So what were some of those that you discovered when you read about Walt Disney? Yeah, the thing about Walt Disney was there's a few things that led to his success. I I think one is he came from an entrepreneurial family. So his, his father, Elias, while a failed entrepreneur, was a serial entrepreneur. And Walt grew up seeing his dad try to start all these businesses. And, and Walt worked in some of those family businesses. And I can imagine around the dinner table that he picked up a lot of things from his dad. And, and, some, and we all have a certain admiring of our, of our parent figures. And, and the other thing is his wiring, you know, the way he was wired. He was a, he was a very optimistic, creative uh, somewhat manic type of person. I mean, once once he uh, got interested in something, he became obsessed with it, and that became the most important thing in his life. And the other thing is that there's a bit of him willing to always take advantage of the opportunities that that, that came to him. And they, you got to remember that as, as this company turned into a, a mega corporation, uh, it's all these little steps of Walt just taking the next step in that path to what he was interested in. Did he have, when you were doing your research, did he have a clear set goal he was going towards or just a general direction? You know, it's interesting because I think at each step, he did have a clear set goal, but but what it ended up being was so far away from <laughs> each of those clear set goals. So he, he had some, each time it was a, it was a pretty big broad jump that he would take. But if you add up all those broad jumps, they probably would end up being the, the span of the Grand Canyon, right? Uh, I don't think he ever foresaw it was on the other edge of the Grand Canyon. But what he did was he would always take on these somewhat grandiose projects that other people thought were insane. And, and along the way, he, he would uh, master it. He would, he would make it happen. He would get people excited. And, you know, one thing along the way, I think part of the blueprint that every great entrepreneur does is they use something, there's this, there's this professor, uh, Judith Glazer, she's a writer, and she talks about conversational intelligence. And she uses something called aspirational language. And I think when you look at all the great entrepreneurs, they talk in as- aspirational terms about where they're going. And then when they, when they paint these pictures in people's heads, people want to join that journey. They want to go on that ride with that entrepreneur. Uh, I think that's why Elon Musk is so popular today, is that he's talking about going to Mars. And he's talking about electric vehicles. And people say, I want to be a part of that. And he's very popular. And Walt Disney was that way. Every grandiose project was painted in a way that got people excited to come along for the ride. And uh, yeah, so I think, I think that was also a major part of his success as well. His ability to paint a positive future. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, would, take these, he would have this picture in his head. And these pictures didn't just happen in a flash. He would... He would go off quiet and just almost meditate on these ideas and study and read and learn. And, and I, I think if he had taken the Gallup Finder uh, profile, he, his number one strength would have been learner. I mean, I think that's why whenever, yeah, whenever Walt mastered something, he, he, he said, I, I've got to learn the next thing. And so that's why he had these broad jumps. He would master it. He would build it. He would make it great. He didn't want to run it. He would hand it off to a manager. And then it was on to the next big idea. And it, each big idea required new learning, 
It required a new set of skills with his people. And, you know, that kept that company fresh. It kept it always expanding. It kept it growing. And, and also, big risk taker, right? I mean, risking things almost every step of the way. So you talked about his dad being a failed serial entrepreneur. To what degree was Walt's trajectory only up? Did he have fails? fails oh, yeah. Him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did have fails. At, at early in his life in Kansas City, he had, he had failed businesses. He had it to where his, he could not make payroll and people had to move on to the next things. And in fact, before he gets on a train and goes out to Hollywood in 1923, he's literally homeless. I mean, he is living basically on the streets, looking in, in garbage cans for food, going to poor houses, trying to get in the food line. I mean, he, he has nothing left. His family has moved on. And that was a hard time. But he, he said, I'm going to look at what's next. And his, his brother and uncle, we're living out in Hollywood, California, and the movie scene is going on out there, and he's got $40 left to his name, and he says, why not? I'll, I'll go out there. That looks like the next best play. Now, what did he do? I mean, like, why would he think to go there, other than just to not be where he was? Was he going towards something? Was I think his instincts told him that that was his next best move, and so, you know, he... He, was, he had his animation uh, background in Kansas City. He kind of learned the art of animation there. And, and he, uh, you know, he did get his hands dirty a little bit in the animation business. He went out to California, I believe, to actually see if he could find a role in traditional movies. So I think he had a dream of being a director, being a producer, maybe an actor. I mean, there were, he was a fan of Charlie Chaplin. That was his hero and idol. And they said he could mimic Charlie Chaplin, which I think later ended up being a skill set that he used in helping make the animated movies when he would actually act out the parts of all the characters. They said anytime you watch a movie from the Walt Disney era when he was alive, that was basically Walt up on the screen and the animators were just capturing it. Wow, I did not know that. But when, I, when you look at those early black and whites, I can picture it when you said the whole Charlie Chaplin thing, you can see it just in the movements and that kind of um, mm -hmm. piece of it. That's amazing. So onward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had a little moment back. No, no, that's it. It really is. That's great. Yeah. And now, and to build on what you were saying, you know, about uh, these big moments. Now, now think about this. This is just for your listeners out there who are going on to that next stage, whatever it is. There, there's a lot of you doing the, the hard work and, and taking the risk and, and having the grit and, and using your skills. And there's another side, it's just the world and the crazy billions and trillions of things that happen out in the world that go your way a certain way, maybe not a certain way. For Walt Disney, think about this. The reason his business has failed in Kansas City is he was not a great business person. He just didn't handle the money side very well. He was good on the creative side. He got people motivated, but he just couldn't get into the black on, on the income statement. But... His, his brother, Roy, who's like a, a father figure, he's eight years older, his big brother, Roy, was in the Navy and had contracted tuberculosis and went out to California to a VA hospital to convalesce in dry air to get over tuberculosis, or at least to get it down. And when Walt moves out there, his brother, who happens to have eight years of bacon experience and is not working at that time, Walt goes to him and says, 
let's start up a, a, our own studio. Walt couldn't get a job in the studios. He said, let's start our own. And, and Roy's not got anything else to do. He's convalescing. He says, sure. So now you've got a brother out there in Hollywood, California in the 1920s when the industry is just taking off. Because before that, it was New York City. That is where movies were, was New York City. But Hollywood's starting to catch up. And Walt goes out there in the 20s. He's got a brother convalescing who's got eight years banking experience to, to bring the strength that Walt did not have. And he gets to live for free at his uncle Robert's house uh, in Hollywood. And they just start, you know, going, working away and, and uh, they get a little deal with, with uh, a lady named Margaret Winkler to make some pictures, some multiple cartoons and boom, they're on their way. And it's, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that, that you were saying, did he have it planned? I, that's, it's to, to a degree he had it planned, but these things that made Walt Disney the, the thing that he ended up being the icon, it's just a, it's a surreal story almost. Well, it's one of those things too, you know, they use the metaphor about you, you think you're going to the highest peak on the mountain until you actually get to that peak and you realize that's only the highest because you couldn't see higher, right? So there's mm-hmm. no way that I would imagine, even if he'd become on the side of the camera he wanted when he went out there, he may not have seen what possibilities could have opened up for him. Exactly. But that didn't, the business he went into initially with his brother, working for that other woman, they didn't stay in that business then? Well, what happened was it it led to another hard lesson for him. Uh, Margaret Lincoln was was a wonderful woman. She was very supportive of Walt. She was the only one in the entertainment business that was willing to take a chance on him. And she liked his work. So she took a chance on this young animator and his brother, and she liked what they were doing. And then she married a gentleman, uh, I believe his name was George Mintz. And Mintz uh, was a hard-nosed business person. And over time, he starts kind of micromanaging Walt, which is not a good thing (laughs) for Walt Disney. He did not like to be micromanaged. And they're doing okay. I mean, they're really, they're growing. The company's taking off. They're, they're expanding. They're, and they come up with a, with a character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And that was actually a, a hit. It was actually Walt's first big hit. And it's moving along. And then there's a time for a contract renewal. And I believe it's with Universal Pictures. Ironically, you know, Disney and Universal still compete with each other. And it's time for renewal. And George Mintz looks at the company and he says, you know, this Walt Disney guy doesn't do any of the drawing. He's just kind of a middle person. He, he said, if we cut this expensive piece of the company out and just take all the animators, I think we can make a lot more money. So what they, what they do is they actually offer Walt and Roy a smaller piece of the pie because they're saying, look, we'll, we'll sign you up again, but it's going to be under some different conditions. And Walt thought he was going to get a raise. He thought they were, they were doing so well that he would get more. And so Walt was in New York City, and he, had, he tried to negotiate with the company. And he shopped the idea around to other people. Shopping around didn't work because he found out that Universal and, and Mintz owned the rights to Oswald. That, was, that, that Disney was actually just a contractor for, you know, even though they created it, it was owned by Universal. So he had a decision, do I want to stay a contractor or do I want to break off and try something new? And his own people, this is a moment of huge betrayal, his own people left him to go with Universal and continue with Oswald the Rabbit. And there was one guy that stayed behind. 
His name was Ub Iwerks, who happened to be a legend in animation. I mean, a genius, a pure genius in animation. Did things no one has ever accomplished. He stayed with Walt out of loyalty. They were old, high, old, uh, old Kansas City friends. And they decide, uh, we're going to do something different. And they come up with, with Mickey Mouse. That's how Mickey Mouse happens. Now, I, what's interesting is that he still had to fulfill the contract for Oswald while he, on the side, secretly with his brother and Ub and a few family members, work on Mickey Mouse at night. Uh, because And they didn't want anybody to know what was going on because they didn't want the ideas stolen. But out of that came a couple of things. Walt Disney, one, learned that he was never going to give up ownership of his intellectual property again. And the second thing is, he got Mickey Mouse. So, again, this he was betrayed. It, it hurt. And yet, there we are again with one of those peaks that you were talking about that you could not have seen. But Mickey Mouse was a huge hit and everything, everything comes off Mickey Mouse. That's why Walt said famously that it was all started by a mouse. Well, and it's interesting as you're saying that there's a lot of parallels to what you hear today with folks who are working, but they want something different. So they're doing what, which now is commonly referred to as a side hustle, right? It's like right. on the side or in your spare time, because that's really more and more common, but it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And for Walt and his brother to continue on with Ub, right? At least right. it was the core of them. Yeah. So, um, and honestly, I, I don't remember anything about that rabbit. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's not around anymore, so. Yeah. Easy so to one, forget. Yeah, one of them sustained. But you talked about how important a mission is, an entrepreneurial or a business mission is. Can you talk about how that glue, how that is a glue and what happens when we forget mission? Yeah, I think a mission is a very personal statement. I, I think it's, 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 your, uh, it's your playbook for, for how you're going to approach everything that you do. It's, it's what you live by. It's that, it's that firm commitment to something that you may look at a lot of different aspects of the business, of the industry, where you go as a company, but there's something that ties it all together. And that, that's that mission. It's what you stand for. And I can tell you that the company still stands for the same things now that it did when Walt Disney was alive. It stands for creativity. It stands for happiness. It stands for magic. I was on a cruise recently at, with a different company uh, as, as a guest of a company. And it was a really good cruise. It was a good experience. But what I realized what they were selling was basically taking a break from responsibility. <laughs> that was really what they were selling. Disney, if you do something on a Disney cruise or you go to a Disney park or you watch one of their shows, you're really being a, a customer of magic. You know, you're getting something that you don't ordinarily get in the world. And, and so I, I think the cruise I took was a fine cruise. It was fun. I, I, I got to be a brat and just leave things laying around and people would pick them up and be, be the, uh, have the cruise life. And I was like, at first I didn't enjoy it, but then later I was like, you know, this really is fun. I'm enjoying leaving towels around at the spa and <laughs> all this stuff. And, uh, but when you go to, to Disney, it's different. It's, it's like you are tapping into a creativity. You're tapping into a different world that these people want to give you an experience unlike anything you could find anywhere else. Well, I don't think it's a mistake that you call it the magic kingdom. Exactly. It's, right? It totally is. And when you're in at a movie or at one of the theme parks, 
it actually does feel like you're somewhere. Well, it is different. You know, the employees act different. Things are just different. It is, it is that magic. And I have friends who have, which I don't live close enough to make this valuable to me, but I have friends who have what I would call season passes, right? All access all the time. And they go to Disney regularly. Mm -hmm. They, They take their kids as they grow up and the kids are older now and they still go because of that. Like she goes, well, where else would you want to be? Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. So you talked about some of the attributes. Has How has Disney been able, the company, been able to maintain that all these years? And what has led them to be stable over these years? I think it's been, uh, one, it was, it was Walt and Roy from the, from the they, they built the foundation. Uh, you've got an iconic entrepreneur uh, whose name is still on that business that they can refer to and, and think about. So, you know, you think about Universal. Uh, Universal Creative has done some amazing work at their theme parks. They really have. But I, you know, I'm a student of the theme park industry, and I, I could not tell you who the founder of Universal Studios was. I know who the founder of Walt Disney Studios was, right, in, in the Walt Disney theme parks. So there's this, there's this image that we have that they, they want to always respect and honor the legacy of Walt Disney. And, and when you take, if you ever take the backstage tours that they give sometimes, they still talk about Walt almost as if he's alive. I mean, it's in referential terms. So those core values that Walt put in place, and, and he was really a genius about uh, working with people to establish those values, how to, how to have everyone uh, work by those values. And there's a saying at, Walt, at the Walt Disney Company that, People either tend to stay there 30 days or 30 years. I mean, you either fit or you don't. They're, they're really firm in their values. And all the practices, all the procedures, all the businesses they go into are keyed off of, of living by those values. So I, I think that's kept them consistent. They've had leaders who, have, who also have honored Walt and wanted to make sure that they built on top of but did not diminish what Walt had done, which I think is – kind of rare out there in a lot of the corporate world where people want to try to scrub what's come before them and leave their own legacy. Well, it's, everyone knows first and foremost that it's still the company that Walt built. Which is probably what attracted them in the first place. Exactly. Yes. I like that 30 days or 30 years. Uh huh. So that made me want to ask you another question in terms of that you talked about being able to bring other people on and have them live by those values and understand them and embrace them, right? So what in your management and leadership work that you've done, what what allows that to happen in a, a small to medium to larger, huge company? Yeah, great question. And that's why one reason we really like to talk about Walt Disney and the, and the company is because when you go down to Walt Disney World, like your friends do, when they go to Disneyland or Disney World, but especially Disney World, it is a place where they've got 60,000 Disney employees or what they call cast members and 40,000 what's called participant employees, people who are contracted in from other companies. There's 100,000 employees at that property. There are usually about a quarter of a million guests on any given, any given day at that park. And people come back like your friends do. They come back. They keep spending money there. They're, they're so happy. And I always like to say, if that place, which by the way is is the largest piece of privately held land in the world, it for you know it is it that operation 
as a private uh, location is the biggest in the world. It's the size of Manhattan. It's the size of San Francisco, okay? Privately operated, privately owned. If they can make people that happy, then surely all of us with much smaller operations can do what we need to do to make our people happy. Uh, to me, that's is kind of the gold standard. It's it, it it takes away the well. I I can't do it. It's like well, Disney does it by on forty two square miles, keeping quarter million people happy. Can't you keep ten people happy? You know, on in a building or something. So I think that's that's one reason they're kind of the gold standard. So starting with that, it's what you said earlier. It really does start with the top. It starts with the top, and I'm working on an idea right now. The, you were, you know, one of the things that many of your your listeners are are at is they're at transitions going maybe from permanent jobs to side hustles. To I turn the side hustle into a full time job, and, and into my own job, into my own company. And and I think I was thinking about this today as I was, as I was driving into the office. I thought it's kind of like deciding: do you want to have a great bicycle or a great car? And, and they're like these wheels of excellence. And I think if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be a freelancer, you can be really happy riding a really great bicycle, you know? So you, that would be yourself, your own personal excellence and your knowledge of, of whatever industry or area you're trying to work in. Those are your two wheels. But when you're going to try to drive a car, you're going to add in the team. That's another wheel and the organization. That's another wheel. And I, I think when we're, people who are driven, we're entrepreneurial, we're, we're high achievers, and we're riding in a car where that, where that organizational wheel or that team wheel isn't rolling very smoothly. Maybe it's got a broken spoke. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit low on air. The car gets clunky. I'd rather be on a smooth riding bike than in a clunky car. But you know what? I might find that um, there's a really nice car that has all the pieces working together that I might fit well into. And so I, th- I think it's, you know, it's a hard choice. I think we oftentimes leave organizations not only because of our own aspirations, but also our own values and our own way that we want things to work aren't lined up. Our wheels aren't on a good piece of, of uh, vehicle that, that we want to be a part of. And we branch off and we say, I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a ride on my own bike. Yeah, and I think that you're, that's a great, that is a great mental picture or frame to have about that as you were talking about that i'm thinking about those little tiny wheels they throw in the back of your thing going yeah those are never a smooth ride they get you there it's yeah a little bumpy and you can't go as fast so it's good to have all the right size tires inflated the right way um, and recognizing that each tire has a different place on the road because you can't all have the same direction that's and right you have to have the alignment right yeah that each one has to have some independence to get the vehicle stable. Exactly. I don't know if I wrecked your metaphor or not. No, 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 you're exactly right. And the other thing I would say on that is if you are on a bike that you you love riding the bike, and I'm a bike rider, so I, I know what it's like, you know, and you, you watch the Tour de France, and I can tell you when you're on a really nice bike, it makes a difference. It really does, you know. And uh, I have a nice bike, and I love, I love my time on that bike. Now, I... I'm not opposed to having a really nice sports car. You know, I would like to have a nice sports car, but just know that if, if you're an entrepreneur and now we're building a company, say you build up from being a freelancer or more smaller entrepreneurial operation, you say, we're going to scale, we're going to grow. 
it's going to be more complex. So it's, that's a judgment call, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to add on these team wheels. I'm going to add on the organizational wheel. Do I know what it takes to do that? What's it going to take for me to learn how to do that? Who am I going to have to have to make sure those wheels are all aligned? It's a much more complex endeavor. It is, but I think if we go back to your book and we take a tip from Walt Disney, part of it's being humble enough to say, I'm not the person to lead this, right? I can be the yeah. idea person, or maybe I am the person to lead it, but I'm not the idea generator, right? So it's like, where are my other tires? Because exactly. you know? That, that's right. And so I, I think you can grow and scale something, but recognizing that you can't be all things yourself. Right. We just don't, you could, but you'll drive yourself into the ground and you will not scale. You will just stay on that bike and keep it, fixing the tires. Exactly. And I think, I think moving into the car, I think is something as you, you nailed it. I think that being aware of, of what components need to be in place and maybe it won't be you, but getting those components in place and having the knowledge it's just critical because I see, I do, I see a lot of people leading things that I don't think have that knowledge. You know, things are just, they're, they've got a little path dependency where they've had some success in the industry. They've got a certain reputation, but things could run a lot smoother. And, you know, I, Walt Disney, he was always open to bring the best people in. I mean, Walt Disney would let them work. I mean, he was, he was very involved, but boy, people liked working for him and he brought them in. And, you know, I, I talk about in the book that uh, there's oftentimes like four types of entrepreneurs, a artist, scientist, builder, and evangelist. And Walt kind of went through those stages in building the company. But each time along the way, he would hire people who were, who were better than him in all four of those areas, to, to, except for evangelists. When Walt got on TV, no one, no one was better on TV than Walt Disney. But the, but the other three, he hired the best to be in that company. I had a um, one of my early bosses in my 20s who was similar. And actually, as, as I picture him, he uses his hands a little like Mickey Mouse did, very animated. <laughs> uh-huh. But at one point, he, he said, I need you to do this. It was not my skill set, not my expertise, and not my responsibility level. It was way above it. And I said, yeah, I'm, I can't do that. He says, oh, no, I hired you because I know you can and I, I always hire people smarter than me because I'm, I have deficits in these areas. Uh-huh. You don't in this area. And I'm thinking, I said, doesn't that bother you? He goes, no, if you're successful, I'm going to be way more successful. And, but I mean, it was the first time I got that connection that he actually counted on his success by the most smart people or successful people he could bring in around him. Because he said, if I don't do that, I'm always going to be here. I can't go off and do other things I want to do. And I need to build a team and go. You mm-hmm. know? So using what's like go to the next level, whether in that kind of trajectory you talked about on the entrepreneurship. So I could talk to you forever. I think you're so fascinating. And Thanks. And your work and your leadership. Before we go, Mike, will you talk about some of the resources that you actually have on your own website and how people can think, and maybe even a little bit about those four areas of entrepreneurship, because I think they help people understand maybe where they are or where they could be going. Sure. So with my co-author, uh, Rob Matthews, we, we developed a website called www.elprofile, that's E-L-P-R-O-F-I-L-E.com. And you can find me, uh, if you want to email me, feel free to email me at 
mike at elprofile.com, or my school address is mgoldsby, M-G-O-L-D-S-B-Y at bsu.edu. And on that site, there are columns we've written. There's, there's other interviews that we have done. Yours will be up there soon. We also have our profile. And in that profile, it was after doing many years of, of being asked the question, so who's an entrepreneur? And I thought about that question, and I, and I gave it a lot of thought, and I developed a profile where I said, really, entrepreneurship is about opportunity. And opportunity, it's how we think about opportunity and how we act on opportunity. So I said, well, people who think in abstract terms and also people who are really like to explore, or they're kind of like artists. And so I, I started talking about entrepreneurs acting like artists in that stage. And Walt was that way when he was an animator. And then when he moved into things like the Silly Symphonies and Snow White and the great classics, he started bringing a lot more technology. And so that, these, these are people who are like scientists. They think more concretely. They think about technology. They think about the real world. But they're still exploring. And so that was the experimental years of the Walt Disney Company. And then people like to be concrete. They like to get into the numbers. They like to get into the real world. But they like to kind of capitalize on what's there or other people call it exploit whatever strengths you have. And I call those people builders. That's that scale that we talked about. How do you get the efficiencies in place to handle all the interests that people have in your company and how do you deliver? And the final box is an evangelist. This is a person who thinks in big ideas. They communicate well. They they connect with people, but they do it on a large scale. So those are the evangelists. And Walt Disney, when he was on TV, and I think even Disneyland was his I think that was his church. I think that's where he went and he actually met with the people there face to face, walked around the park. And uh, that that became kind of his cathedral. Uh, And the TV was uh, very much where he evangelized the Disney way of life that really became a part of Americana. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, and I can still picture him on TV, you know, being a little bit older than you. I do remember that. But I could just think about what if I was walking with him in Disneyland, and he pitched something to me, the likelihood of me saying no (laughs) is non-existent, right? Right. I mean, it would just be too engaging. So the whole evangelist piece really makes sense. I want to thank you so much for being on this show today. And I really appreciate your work and and learning just not just from your book, but just from the study and the research that you do in the field of business and entrepreneurship. So great success to you and everything that you do. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a real pleasure being on your show and good luck to all your listeners out there. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard, and if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no-labels, no-limits, and no-excuses life.